Hello and welcome to Telling Stories. My name is James Troopney. Today we continue our story of Ricky the Dragon Steamboat and his 12 forgotten tag team titles. I don't really mean to say forgotten, obviously they were quite famous, but it seems to me in the days of the generation where tag team titles are won and lost on the turn of a coin, that those epic battles of the 1970s and 1980s are lost in the history books. But equally, you go to a tag team as well on this particular visit, the highly influential and very important to wrestling history, not just as tag team wrestlers, but as single wrestlers and as executives as well. We start talking about the Briscoe Brothers. Not that pair of Briscoes, the original Briscoe Brothers, Jack and Jerry. So let us take our story to Greensboro, North Carolina, and find out what's happening in 1982. As Jerry Briscoe explained in his interview with Slam Canoe, it was his last chance saloon for the Briscoe Brothers. Jack had a stellar career but was getting worn down by the constant demands on his body. He loved wrestling, but he was one of the few wrestlers of his era to take breaks when he needed them. He was also heavy on the symbolism. When he finished his run as the NWA World's Heavyweight Champion, he walked to the nearest bridge and threw his watch into the river. He was a free man. Towards the end of the 70s, Jack and Jerry looked into finding a lighter schedule where they could key in on their star power and allow some family bonding time. Jerry and Jack called Jim Crockett and phased out their promotional efforts in Florida. Jerry said probably the favourite title was being able to cap off my career and win the world tag titles with my brother Jack. It was a statement to their talent that a pair of wrestlers who had largely been beloved in their careers could pull off a heel to with such a plum. As Jack stated, throughout our careers, Jerry and I had teamed upon occasion, so we got together, talked about it, and both decided we wanted to finish our career together as a team. They would be a smash, and the heel turn started instantly enough. In a match with Jay and Ricky, Jay chopped Jack so hard he fell and landed awkwardly on Steamboat's leg. The match was called on a technical knockout, and the Briscoes were hated as the men who put Steamboat's career in jeopardy. What started out as a six-month run for the Briscoes would turn into a two-year farewell tour. The Briscoes still did the same things in the ring they always did, but gone were the smiles and the boyish grins. The figure four would be their calling card, a vicious-looking hold in the hands of either man. They had a way of putting on that was all power. They extenuated that by dashing, they extenuated that by dishing out punishment in squash matches in a mean-spirited, bullying way that signified how dangerous they could be. With Jay and Ricky the whitest of white meat baby faces, it was a simple narrative, but one the Carolina fans could get their heads around. The Briscoes would take the titles on June the 18th, 1983. Ricky and Jay would get them back on October the 3rd. Both title changes taking place in Greenville. Three weeks later, the titles would be back in the Briscoes' hands after a titanic struggle in Richmond. This hot potatoing of the belts was rare for the time period, and no two teams would have the same kind of push for some time. It established the even matchup, and the two teams were equally talented and accentuated unpredictability. At Starcade, with Flair's ascent to the NWA world title looking a little like a coronation, this bout was all about what might happen. Youngblood and Steamboat would take the belts in a bona fide tag classic. It would be Steamboat's last hurrah with Crockett in that run. Ricky announced his retirement as the belts were held up on Christmas Day 1983. In reality, Ricky had grown disillusioned with Mid-Atlantic. With Flair being the face of the company, no matter what side of the face heel divide he was on, there was little room for improvement. He had been a key draw for the company, but there was no more singles opportunities for him, though he had been a popular solo draw, and he was likely to be pigeonholed as a tag team specialist. It was time to move on. Jay would stay, but his life would be cut short. While wrestling in Australia, he died on September the 2nd, 1985. Thought to be the victim of several heart attacks after a ruptured spleen, he was one of Texas's forgotten sons in pro wrestling. For a period in the early 80s, he showed all the promise of being a major star. Ricky would, of course, move up north. I'm sure you're well aware of the next chapters in his career. His debut in the WF, just as it was reaching its cartoon peak. His feud with Jake Roberts that made him a WWE attraction. Moving on to that match with Randy Savage, where he played the perfect babyface to Savage's over-the-top jealous heel at WrestleMania 3. 
his subsequent de-push for asking for family time in the wake of his Intercontinental title victory, and his subsequent return to Jim Crockett promotions for his headlining era-defining feud with Ric Flair. He'd also do some guest appearances for New Japan Pro Wrestling in a series of dream matches around this time. And after another life break, he returned as the fire-breathing dragon in the WWF, a gimmick that was going nowhere fast, and was paired with one of the scientific great-turned-WWE afterthought, Steve Skinner-Kern. The pair would be a hit on the house show circuit as well. Used to having one-hour Broadway's road agent Black Jack Mulligan would use them to fill out time, but as for TV, they were going nowhere. So he would move back home for one last extended run, and it would be tag team competition where he made his mark first. The scene of Steve-O's re-debut was set with a face turn for Barry Windham. The disintegration of the horseman with Ric Flair's departures to the WWF had given Barry a face makeover. He struck up a tag team with a supremely over Dustin Rhodes. On the other side of the horseman disintegration, Arn Anderson found a kindred spirit in the now jobless AWA champion Larry Zbysko. Their tag team, the Enforcers, won the tournaments of the vacant tag team titles. Wyndham and Rhodes be their first challengers. The match was set for November 21st, 1991 for the Clash of the Champions. Wyndham and Rhodes were portrayed as a serious threat to the Enforcers' old school dominance and Larry and Arn took the possibility of losing seriously. They jumped Wyndham and Rhodes in the parking lot before Halloween with Havoc and smashed Barry's hand in a car door. He would be out for the title match. Rose was allowed to take a mystery partner. When a character in a large dragon's head costume came down to ringside, it left the champions bemused. But riffing on his less than opportune WWF run, Ricky Steamboat had arrived back in his home territory. Rose and Steamboat would take the titles in an upset. They would hold them until January of 1992. With no confirmed long-term big bad in WCW, the booking committee turned their lonely eyes to the management skills of one poorly dangerously. Paul Heyman had been off the job of wrestling management for some time. His announcing duties with Jim Ross had made him a vital part of a great broadcast team and put down the headstock when called for. Taking Ravishing Rick Rude as his centrepiece, Steve Austin, the Enforcers and Bobby Eaton, along with the Hall of Fame management and the agility of Medusa Miscelli, the Dangerous Alliance was a heat machine that moved WCW's programming forward in a big way. The Enforcers would come to an end. The obvious thing to do when you had two masters of the art of tag team wrestling, Bobby Eaton and Arn Anderson on the same side. Ian and Anderson were a dream heel team, bringing the no-holds-bar approach to the horsemen to equally bearing with the sweet science of the Midnight Express. They would end up the champions in a house show on January the 16th. It would also be the end of the Rhodes and Steamboat as a team. With Wyndham coming back off the storyline bench, the title focus shifted back to them, and eventually to the Steiner brothers, when Scott made a full recovery. The titanic battle for tag team world domination would occur over the spring and summer of 92, as the Miracle Violence connection came to town. Steamboat was, of course, quite busy in this period, but having been introduced with a bang, WCW didn't waste his momentum. After being part of the War Games match that pitted Sting's squadron against the Dangerous Alliance, signaling the end of the alliance, he feuded with US champion Rick Rude, the obvious attraction of the Family Man versus the womanizing Lothario. However, WCW would find themselves in a tag team hole yet again when the Steiners didn't renew their contracts and headed to Stamford, and Terry Gordy and Steve Williams realised they'd had their run. It was time to return to All Japan. Wyndham and Rhodes, as already explored in the series, would take the titles in the summer of 92. They would be joined at the top of the division by two makeshift teams who would punch well above their weight. The Hollywood Blondes were a team made up by two guys who had been left behind. Steve Austin had been a mechanical cog of the Dangerous Alliance, bumping all night to get his crew over. Flying Brian Pillman had become the Hollywood Brian Pillman in an effort to renew his waning babyface popularity. When Booker Dusty Rhodes put them together, he couldn't have expected much. What he got was one of the most entertaining, outspoken and outlandish tag teams to ever grace WCW. What they needed really to make a spark was a pure white meat baby face. Rhodes found his men in Shane Douglas and Ricky Steamboat. Douglas had just come back from his first run in the WWF. It had been a lacklustre, placed somewhere just ahead of the Brooklyn Brawler and just behind Skinner on the card. It was not the land of opportunity he'd hoped it would be. 
Looking for work, he was in WCW on a nightly deal, held by the new management of Bill Watts, who had been a long-time fan of Douglas from his days running Mid-South, along with his second-generation tandem of Wyndham and Rhodes. The teams could have a long series that was a partly scientific masterpiece, partly a heated sporting rivalry, and partly an entertaining heat magnet. A trio of options that couldn't lose. Someone had to pay attention, and for all six men it was to signify a crossroads in their careers. Steamboat and Douglas would take the titles from Wyndham and Rhodes in Macon, Georgia, and the Clash of the Champions 21, November 18, 1992, almost a year since Steamboat came back to the company and took his first title run. While the matches with Wyndham and Steamboat would be scientific classics, the matches with the Hollywood Blondes would be in part something completely fresh. Austin and Pillman's unique dynamic, but also something as old as the Hills, the white meat babyface tag team, exactly like Paul Jones and Ricky Steamboat had pulled off 12 years before. Douglas would find ultimate fame as the franchise, the foul-mouthed, arrogant, over-the-top heel in ECW, but before that he was the perfect clean-cut young babyface, Trained in the same class as Cactus Jack, McFoley, he'd taken Dominic Nucci's lessons to heart. He believed in himself and his character, and after 10 years in the business, he wasn't about to let his shot at a major title run pass him up. Steve Austin has commented that Douglas's talent as a face is often overlooked as in the bluster of the franchise. The feud started when the not-quite-as-yet-Hollywood blondes attacked Ricky Steamboat and Shane Douglas at Clash of the Champions event in November of 92. Smashing Shane with one of the title belts, this led to a grudge match on TV taping in the run into Starcade of 92. What made the few tick was all four's expert understanding of ring psychology. Three of them were not known for their tag team exploits, aside from the disaster that was the Dynamic Dudes, a team that needs to be forgotten rather than remembered. Douglas had largely flown solo. Pillman had an occasional runs with Tom Zink, but not that seriously, and Austin had always been portrayed as a high-level singles wrestler. They all found the story well. Douglas could sell so well you really did believe he was in serious career-threatening pain. Austin could bump and had heel tag psychology down cold. Pillman was all over the place, relishing his first serious hero run, and Steamboat was Steamboat. Having not skipped a beat in 20 years, he wasn't about to start now. When Douglas took his hot dag in the first non-title encounter, the building erupted with shrieking teenage female fans, just as they had done for Youngblood and Steamboat 10 years earlier. Clearly, the booking committee was taking notes. When the Blondes won with an innovative finish, Pillman springboard clothesline Douglas hit Austin in a Connor roll, and then claimed he'd tagged in behind the referee's back, the feud up no notch in intensity. The Blondes would be the main challenges on the house show circuit. One night in Atlanta's Omni, they targeted Steamboat's leg, weakening him for the eventual decisive title match on a WCW worldwide taping in Macon, Georgia. The Blondes would take the titles, and it would end Steamboat's championship tag career. His eight reigns as WCW champion put him joint first on the all-time list with a far more obvious tag team talent of Ollie Anderson, and fifth on the list of most days reign behind Ollie and Gene Anderson and Rick Steiner, and Scott Hall. His time at WCW, before that Jim Crockett Promotions, had a foundation in tag team wrestling. It's what caught Vince McMahon's eye and sent him to Stanford, Connecticut. This dragon's tale shows how duality and unselfishness can be the tone of your career. Thank you for listening to Telling Story today. My name's been James Troopany, and you've been listening to the story of Ricky Steamboat's Forgotten 12 Tag Team Titles. Thank you for listening to the show. You can go and see our sponsors in the Empire Magazine, and you can go see powerslam.tv where you can use the code MULLETWATCH to get a free month from your subscription. You can follow the show on Twitter, at Troopy Show. You can follow us on Facebook, The Troopy Show, and Patreon where you can keep The Troopy Show free forever for everyone. My name's Sheriff Lone Star on Twitter, and you can also listen to Sheriff Lone Star and the Deputies of Heartbreak at Bandcamp forward slash Sheriff Lone Star, the people that wrote our theme tune. Take care. We'll see you soon.